Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. It's Valentine's week, and I forgot. So, no, this isn't a Valentine's Day-themed episode. I'm sure some of you just breathed a sigh of relief. (laughs) I am excited for this week, though. We have four very scary stories for you this week. It seriously runs the gamut of horror genres. There are ghosts and aliens and even one that gets very existential in a very fucking horrifying way. Before we begin, I wanted to remind you at the top for the end skippers or those who truly fall asleep to the show that you can send me your stories. Send me any fiction or nonfiction stories you've got to scarytosleep at gmail.com. And our sponsors this week are Shudder and Zola. Listen up and check out the show notes for my special offer codes for you. Now, on with the stories. First up is by The Odd Cat Lady, and if you like what you hear, she also has a book available on Amazon called Wedding Bells. I will link that in the show notes. Today, I have for you her story, Mr. Ferguson. I think the whole street breathed a sigh of relief when we saw the EMTs take a body bag out of the Ferguson house. I was only about 10 or 11 at the time, and it's been a while, so some details of my childhood are lost to me, but I can't forget Mr. Ferguson. There was never a Mrs. Ferguson in the picture, as far as I know. He lived in the house in the corner the one with the bright yellow shutters and the gorgeous garden out back. The garden didn't make up for the rotten old bastard he was. I wondered once if he was nicer when he was younger, when he didn't have to walk with a cane and could actually get around without help. But my dad set me straight on that one. Mr. Ferguson had always been a terrible person and the neighbor from hell. All day long, Mr. Ferguson would sit on his front porch in his rocking chair, grasping onto his black cane as he stared out on the street. If someone walking their dog even got close to his yard, he'd start spewing threats about what he'd do if the dog took a shit on his lawn. If a kid put even a toe on his property, he'd get up from his chair and start shouting more terrible things. I learned my first cuss words from Mr. Ferguson. He didn't censor his language even among the smallest of ears, and he wasn't all talk. One of my friend's dogs wandered into the Ferguson yard, just sniffing around as beagles do, and Mr. Ferguson beat that dog bloody. The poor thing had anxiety for the rest of its life. If you so much as passed the Ferguson house with the dog, it would lose its mind. Other than that, our neighborhood was a pretty friendly place. Summers were full of cookouts and pool parties. Winters had secret Santa gift exchanges, and someone was always willing to help shovel out your driveway. You'd never be pressed to find a babysitter on short notice. Odds are your friend had a teenage daughter willing to make a few bucks to make sure the kids were in bed on time. But not Mr. Ferguson. People did try to bring him in on the fun sometimes. He'd scoff and tell them to leave him alone in no uncertain terms. Mom said he just wanted to be miserable. 
I didn't understand how someone could want that. And, well, I still don't. One hot summer morning, though, his caretaker came in to do a check and found him in his garden, dead as a doornail. Probably a stroke or heart attack. My mom made us go to the funeral. I don't know why. She probably hated Mr. Ferguson the most, and we were like one of five people that went. One of those people was the priest. At least it was short. The priest said a few words about how we should treasure our lives and be good to others, and then Mr. Ferguson was chucked into the ground. That was that. Or so I thought. The accidents started happening just a week later. I was at my friend Michael's house. We were playing board games when we heard the crash. It was so loud it shook the house. And Michael dropped his soda. Root beer spilled onto the carpet as we tried to figure out what the sound was for a second. Then we heard his dad screaming bloody murder. Forgetting completely about the spilled soda, we ran out to the garage where he'd been working on changing the oil in the car. Michael's dad was pinned by the car against the garage door, face white as a sheet as his head lolled to the side. I saw blood splattered against the off-gray color of the metal, and I puked while Michael ran inside to call 911. It was luck that he survived. He never walked again, and health issues plagued him for the rest of his life. But for a guy crushed by a car, that's probably best-case scenario. It was an accident, sure, but a weird one. The car just suddenly launched forward as Michael's dad stood in front of it. But there was no one in the garage with him. So yeah, it was just an accident. But accidents started happening more and more often. The next one was at the final pool party of the season. We were all at the Benson house because they'd just gotten a brand new hot tub. There was probably like 12 kids running around, the sun was shining, the barbecue was sizzling. I had just gotten out of the pool to grab a lemonade and was chatting with Annie when I heard the pop. Mrs. Benson and her friends had been relaxing in the hot tub, making jokes and laughing until the pop. Their bodies suddenly went rigid before they began rapidly jerking about and twitching. Mr. Benson shouted if she was alright and I heard this gurgled yell before Mrs. Benson went under. The kids stampeded out of the pool and I smelled something burning before I realized that the hot tub was on fire. Mrs. Benson and her sister ended up dying on the way to the hospital. The other woman ended up surviving but not without some serious electrical burns. Electrocution via hot tub. Just an accident. But there was one more accident we all missed until we returned to the pool to see a little body floating at the top. Three-year-old Maggie had fallen in during the chaos and drowned. Mr. Benson moved away after that, losing both his wife and youngest child in the house. 
just killed something inside of him. But after he moved away, we all saw it happen. His backyard became overgrown by plants. Not over a few weeks, like what happens when a house is uninhibited and there's no one there to mow the lawn. The very next day, after they'd left the house, the backyard was now filled with dandelions, daffodils, lilies, and all sorts of flowers that shouldn't naturally appear in late summer. It was like a garden. Accidents happen, sure, but not like this. Not when a guy who's been working home improvement his entire life ends up toppling from a ladder and breaking his spine. Not when a mom trips and falls face first into the open dishwasher and ends up getting impaled on a knife. Not when a toddler was left alone for just a few seconds and ends up nearly drowning in the bathtub. Dogs ran into the road and ended up getting hit by cars. Kids fell from their bunk beds and cracked their heads like eggshells on their dressers. Teenagers got into fatal car wrecks. It was a mess. Two other families ended up leaving our neighborhood, and their yards had the same fate as the Bensons. Completely grown over. A morbid beauty. Fall came, and the yards grew brown. But the garden seemed to be even greener. The whispers started about a ghost. A ghost that was such a miserable old bastard in life and was now a nasty poltergeist in death. Mr. Ferguson had never left our neighborhood. It all came to a head when a tree was struck by lightning and a large tree limb crashed into our living room. I'd just tripped while picking up my things and suddenly the roof caved in above me. I was lucky I was on the ground. If I'd been standing, well, I'd probably not be telling you this story. Two nights later, my mom woke me up. She looked grim. Come on, we are going to see Mr. Ferguson. When we walked out of the house, I saw everyone on our street was out. Everyone had the same grim look on their face. The deaths, the mutilation. It had forever tarnished our street, and we'd all had enough. We walked down the street. I saw several guys walk into Mr. Ferguson's house with mallets and chainsaws, but we kept going with a few of the others. I saw that several of the adults were carrying shovels and containers of lighter fluid. We walked into the graveyard and my mom led them right to Mr. Ferguson's grave. She took a deep breath. Start digging. It was the frantic endeavors of people who believed they were cursed. Dirt flew in the air and nearly pelted me in the head a few times. I hid behind my mom who just stood there, stone-faced. Even now, the accidents weren't over. A man tripped in the hole and his leg snapped like a twig. He wailed as he was dragged away by a few others before they got right back to digging. 
Someone else got smacked in the face with a shovel and blood coursed down his face from his nose as he just kept on digging. Finally, the coffin was reached. The lid cracked open. Mr. Ferguson's body laid inside. He didn't even look dead. It was like he was just taking a nap. Then they started pouring the lighter fluid in. It covered the corpse's skin, his clothes. They probably added more than necessary. My mom struck the match and threw it in, shielding me from the sudden burst of flames. I didn't get to see the body, but I swore. I heard that old man's yelling as his body burned. It was over after that. The gardens were all dead by morning. The accident stopped. And although we'd lost so many of our friends over the past year, we recovered. New neighbors moved in. We welcomed them into our fold. One or two asked about the property on the corner. The one that looked like a tornado hit it. And we just said it was vandals. They stopped asking. We never talked about what we did to Mr. Ferguson's body. And soon, we just stopped thinking about it. I grew up on that street. Even now, I only live a few blocks away. And for so long, I wondered why our family was practically the only one untouched by the tragedy. We never got hurt, even when the tree branch came crashing into our living room. I think I found the answer. See, my mom passed away a few months ago from breast cancer, and I've been going through her things. She's always been such a good, kind woman, and it was great seeing pictures of her helping plant the garden behind the church and teaching at the local school. But in the bottom of the box, hidden under dozens of other albums, was a picture from when she married my dad. Unlike the family picture with the groom, all it was was my mom and an older man. I didn't recognize him until I flipped the picture over. On the back was written, Pauline Walters P. Ferguson and the father of the bride. Our next story is by Katrine Kiernan, and this one is called, If You Break Down on Aston Road, Don't Call the Police. I've always had a terrible commute. Working at a late night restaurant that's an hour's drive away meant that I had to leave my house at five in the afternoon and come back in the early hours of the morning. In the summer, that means seeing the sunrise, and I can even enjoy it sometimes. In the winter, it's a different story. I live down winding country lanes with no streetlights, and when the trees grow too thickly around the road, it feels like a tunnel wrapping around your car. The worst part of the journey is Aston Road. It's a few miles long, but 
If I take that route, it saves me 45 minutes on my trip. I haven't taken that route for three months. It had been a bad night at work. I don't remember why, but I know it was all the usual trivial things that usually got to me. And with the way I felt, the last thing I wanted was to be sitting in the car for an extra 45 minutes. I should have never driven down Aston Road on a night like that. The moonlight barely poked through the clouds, and a light mist of rain obscured any visibility that was left. I reasoned to myself that nobody else would be on the road. If I went slowly and took my time, everything would be fine. The car wheels crunched on the immediate change to gravel as it screeched onto Aston, and I shifted in my seat as I went along the road. I had been right. It was the only set of headlights, and I drove until the net of trees grew so thick that I had to crane forward to see what was ahead of me. The pace of my old car slowed to a crawl. Now I could barely see past a few feet. The headlights were soaked up by the darkness, and I stopped the car, frustrated. I couldn't get anywhere like this. I would barely be able to see my turn off. I realized then that I couldn't even see the moonlight through the clouds. But as I looked up, the sky looked strangely shiny, like the chrome reflection of metal. I craned my eyes, and as they adjusted... I realized it wasn't the sky I'd been looking at. In the air, directly above me, there was a car. It hovered, suspended as if from wires, and I froze. In the darkness, I realized it was my car, the same dented Mini with a flat tire. But that wasn't possible. I cranked down the window the joints of the car squealing from the effort and carefully my hands trembling I looked out directly above me someone with the same blonde hair as me looked out of the car window I snapped back into the car my breath ragged as I pulled the window back up again this couldn't be happening this couldn't be real I felt my lungs constrict and ache like they always did when I was afraid. I grew increasingly lightheaded as I scrambled for my inhaler, breathing in two deep puffs. But the dizziness increased, doubled itself, sent itself into thousands, and my head reeled. Outside, I heard the noise of a car door opening. I rested my forehead on the steering wheel trying to find gravity again, all the while painfully aware that when I had my eyes closed, I couldn't watch the window and whatever was outside. It was five minutes, perhaps. It felt like hours, but finally it subsided and I caught my breath again. I looked up, dazed, checked above me, and saw the car was gone. I settled my heart rate and looked around again, but I wasn't at the turn of the junction. I was at the beginning of the road. I was strangely tilted and realized I wasn't even on the road itself. My car was in the ditch beside it. I felt my heart swell with relief. It was an accident. The uneasiness hadn't left me. 
the feeling that raised the hair on the back of my neck. I grabbed my phone and dialed 999 and almost cried with relief when it rang. Hello. A grainy, static voice came from the other end of the line. I've had an accident. My car went off the road and I think I hit my head. I might be crazy here, but I think someone else is out here with me and I'm scared. Can you send someone to Aston Road? A buzz of white noise came from the speaker. Hello. It came again. The same robotic noise. I strained my ears to hear over the fuzz of the telephone lines. It will be possible. The words sounded strangely pieced together, as if each syllable was said by a different person, and I cursed under my breath as my phone was disconnected. At least, I'd been heard. I pulled my jacket over me, shivering and waited. The lights came first, blue and red flashes in the dark. I felt a pang of relief, reassured myself that the line between reality and imagination was slim, and waited for the police car to come into sight. It didn't. It, the lights grew ever closer in the dark, but they were disembodied. There was no car attached to the flashes, and as they grew closer and closer, it was almost unbearably bright. I shielded my eyes, blinded until I heard the sound of a car door shut, and immediately the light shut off. The two watery beams of light from my car flickered. I must survey you to continue, the policeman spoke. His face rested in the shadow of his hat, and my eyes strained to see past it. Look, I've had a crazy night. If there's any way I could just get a lift, just a little further down the road. I tried to make my voice sound firm, assertive, but the policeman remained unmoving. I couldn't even see his chest rise and fall. I'm afraid. The policeman wrapped his tongue around the words like it was painful. That will not be possible. There was no police car. I looked at the officer and realized that his uniform was spotless, but strangely outdated. The strange curve of the hat and heavy cuffs. I bit my lip. Something was wrong. I need to leave now, I could hear the edge in my own voice. I felt cornered. The side of the ditch walling me in and I could feel my chest tighten again. The policeman remained silent, watching me. I scrambled out of the car and for a moment we looked at each other. The mist from my breath plumed out in front of me. Then the policeman moved forward. His boots scraped against the ground as if some force was dragging him toward me. His hands closed around my neck so quickly I could barely register that it had happened. I gasped, constricted, struggled. 
The policeman's hands were burning on my skin, and I looked up, clawing in desperation. The movement had caused his hat to tilt back, and I could see his face in the headlights. His face was contorted to a grimace of pain and fear. I could see the purple veins run through his skin and thick, dark saliva dripped from his closed mouth. Please let me go. I am afraid. The policeman's mouth opened and my hands dropped to my side. Inside there were rows of teeth, not like a shark, like a worm jutting out from the dark flesh. Past the teeth, past the stench of death, there was a dark place. I could hear the words coming from it. They buzzed inside my head like insects. That will not be possible the policeman said. Inside the policeman, the teeth smiled. His eyes locked onto mine, a frightened animal in a trap. Although the grip on my neck was intended to hold me in place, not cut off my air, I could feel the familiar tightening in my lungs and gasped. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I whispered. The dizziness almost overwhelming me. Light spots erupted in my closed eyes and I imagined I was falling back. Falling endlessly. I hit the ground. The policeman pulled his hat over his eyes and watched me as I struggled to the car, my fingers scrabbling over my jacket as I retched air into my lungs. A small plastic inhaler was in my hands and I slumped against the car as I took it in. Uncontrollable shaking wrenched my shoulders. My breathing remained shallow, but the policeman watched me still, silent in the shadows. He walked, circling the car as if he was observing a dying cockroach on its back. I am afraid. The man's eyes rolled in his head. His face stretched into a grimace. It is not possible. His mouth contorted. The words strained, as if he had never spoken them before. Not! His voice rattled in his throat as he hissed. Oh! I felt the world shift again, and I was falling backwards, but I didn't hit the ground. I kept going and going. My heart felt like it was going to burst, and then there was nothing. Here are the facts I was given. I crashed into a ditch and hit my head. In my panic, an asthma attack was triggered, and I stumbled out of the car. Helpless, I then clutched at my throat with such force that I almost collapsed my own windpipe. Erratic behavior is common with concussions, I've been told. Eventually, I dragged myself through the gravel to my car, where I managed to take my inhaler before losing consciousness.
A woman on her morning commute found me. The problem is, that isn't what I remember. I am afraid. Third up tonight is an untitled story by Ashley Vinther. I pull the key from the lock of the back door to the bar I work at. It's a little past 4am and my shift has just ended. I walk down the tight alley filled with dumpsters and the odd dark window to the main road. The streets are all bare. Even the partygoers must have gone home by now. Not even the early joggers are up yet. Not on a Sunday. It's cold, so I quickly hide my hands in the pockets of my leather jacket. I should substitute it for my winter coat soon. My heels click on the pavement. The only sound other than the wind and faint thud of one of my earbuds tapping against the zipper of my jacket. That's become a habit. One earbud in, one out, so that I'm not completely cut off from the sleeping town around me so that I'm still entertained by the soft, calming tones I always choose for my nightly walks home from the bar. So far, nothing has happened to me other than the occasional cat call. Eyes down, I'll be fine. And I always have been. The streets are still empty as I abandon them for the park I have to walk through to get to my place. I could walk around the park, adding an additional 40 minutes to my walk, but... Who wants to add that kind of time to their involuntary middle-of-the-night stroll? Besides, I've passed through these gates hundreds of times before. I'll be fine. I always have been. So why do I find myself taking a deep breath as the sound of my heels change from sharp clicks to low thuds against the dirt path? I keep my eyes forward. Aimed at nothing in particular, as I walk down the path I know so well. Even so, it takes them a while to adjust to the darkness. It's crazy how dark it gets once you've left the streetlights behind. I feel myself taking another deep breath as I fight an urge to check behind me. I do this every night. No one's following me. There's no reason to look, I know that, but the urge is there. So I turn up the music, now hearing it blast from the bud hanging against my chest too. It's that quiet. The birds aren't even up yet. They would be in the summer. In the summer, even the sun would be up by now. I'd be able to see more of the dirt path than just a slightly lighter strip in front of me. I know the dirt is lined with grass on either side. But other than the fact that it's darker, I can't tell. In the darkness, everything's just shades of gray to me. But hey, if I can't see anything, no one can see me either. I find myself picking up the pace slightly as I enter the final third part of my stroll through the park. I don't really notice at first, or maybe I pretend not to notice, but suddenly I find myself having to take deeper breaths to keep up with the change of pace. I attempt to distract myself with thoughts of really needing to start going to the gym again, 
as I forced myself to take shorter, slower strides. That weird paranoid feeling of something is becoming more and more overwhelming. I'm not even sure why. It's not like I can hear footsteps behind me or... Damn it. I looked over my shoulder as I lowered the sound of my music, just to make sure. I didn't see anything or anyone behind me. There hasn't been as much as a single sign that anyone's following me. Yet my hands are clammy and my forehead is shiny with a thin layer of sweat, despite the cold. Now that my music is down and I turn it down further, I can hear my own somewhat ragged breaths. The wind rustles the leaves all around me. Despite having forced my pace down, it is picking up again and this time I don't stop it. I steal a glance over my shoulder knowing all too well that I'm being silly. I wouldn't see anyone behind me, both because it is dark and because no one is there. I feel the ground shift under me, my breath catches in my throat. My racing heart skips a beat as my ankle twists and it takes some serious effort not to topple over in the dark. It takes embarrassingly long to realize that all that happened was I stepped outside of the path as I stole what was only supposed to be a quick glance over my shoulder. I don't wait, I just hobble on, on my now aching ankle. I'm nearly gasping for air now as I make my way down the path, way too fast for my potentially injured ankle. But I have to get out of here, home. I am in fight or flight mode, my heart attempting to beat its way out of my chest so it can escape on its own. I nearly throw myself out onto the street and into the yellow light of the streetlights. My ankle throbbing, my chest hurting, and my legs stinging from lactic acid. I don't run, knowing I'd lose myself in panic if I did. But I walk faster than I've ever walked before. I haven't even noticed that my other earbud has fallen out, leaving all my senses sharp and focused on everything around me. The only noise in the quiet night is my own ragged breath. Panicked breaths and the dangling of my keys, which I am now clutching so hard in one hand that my knuckles are turning white. I'm still blocks from my house, but I don't want to risk having to fumble for them inches away from safety. I'm so close to home now. I'm not going to give in to my paranoia. I might be nearly running, my heart up in my throat, iron-flavored saliva filling my open, gasping mouth but I am not going to look behind me. I know it's just my imagination. I lose it in the driveway. My foot has barely left the sidewalk before I am running, my heels slapping the stones and then the stairs. My hands shake violently as I try to fit the key in the lock. I miss, not once, not twice, but three times. Finally, I hit the magic hole turn the key and almost fall through the open doorway. I smack the door violently behind me, pressing my back against it for good measure, finally knowing I found safety in my own home. I flick on the lights and nearly cry as I take a couple of seconds to feel the panic 
begin to leave my body. A laugh of relief escapes my dry lips as I wipe the sweat off my brow and begin to take off my jacket. It's clinging to my damp body. I am so silly. I always get so paranoid on these walks home, but I'm fine. Nothing ever happens. And nothing has happened tonight. Just my overactive imagination going haywire. That's when a movement at the corner of my eye catches my attention. I stare with surprise and amusement as the handle moves downward, almost as if someone is pressing it. I just stare not comprehending what I'm seeing. My eyes lift almost in slow motion and focus on the small pentagon window in my front door. That's when I see his eyes staring right at me, only the door separating us. The scream catches in my throat. Our last story tonight comes from fan favorite Catherine Eddowes. She comes to us tonight with a story called Libby's Flatmate. Libby hated the city, the city that the companies owned. She hated it when it was still a stopgap, but that had been ten years ago, and now it seemed like this, as they say, was it. We're all full on this bus, little girl. No return ticket for you. She closed the door to her small apartment and placed the keys on the solitary hook. They looked depressed hanging there. She imagined herself hanging there. She stared at the wall. She looked towards the television. But she didn't feel like watching television tonight. She hadn't felt like it for a while now, to be honest. The feeling that the city was pushing in on her, down on her shoulders, had been getting greater recently almost overwhelming. The sky here was dark, always. Dark buildings and dark people. It rained a lot, and at night the wind would scream and wage its midnight-hearted war with the city through its alleyways and streets. In her depressing ten years here, Libby had discovered that she was not the ambitious go-getter she had dreamed herself to be when she was in high school. Neither was she the same go-getter at her two years of local college. Why, she now asked, nay, my lord accused herself. Had she ever dreamed it would be different here? Was it the icon of this city that had germinated life into that sweet little lie of herself? 
New city, new Libby. Was that it? She thought about this now as she stood in her gray living room, in her gray apartment, in this dark, gray city. She had found herself thinking about this more and more recently, ever since the final, complete, and ultimate admission that her current situation was not, after all, a stopgap. When that admission had come, it had been so strangely, silently final, and slow like a surprise shag that left in the morning without a by your word that's life get over it my sweet it had not been accompanied by a sudden life changing bolt of lightning because that's just in the films little thing no when it had eventually come it has simply and quietly knocked on the door moved in its furniture and clothes and sat its flabby arse down on the couch and now had complete control of the remote thank you very much but it happened quietly so quietly it was almost a whisper slowly so slowly it was almost glacial Libby had been too too preoccupied with denying who she really was who she really had been all of this time and who even more depressingly she now knew she was going to end up being the same to notice it everything just turned itself inside out and Libby had allowed herself to be turned with it the last few years had been so heartbreaking so devoid of any ambition, hope, or drive, that Libby was now frightened to even consciously think about it. There were occasions where she had been sick, physically sick, from the appearance in the doorway of that revelation, that newly arrived, unassuming roommate of hers who worked weird hours so she hardly saw him, kept himself to himself and always seemed to tidy up. No dirty dishes on the countertop, not even a whiff of condensation from using the shower. And actually, when she thought about it, he really was the perfect flatmate. Except for when he was around and Libby was aware of him. He was living it up in the bedroom they shared, music busting out of the walls, He was really going to town and generally invading Libby's personal space and sanity. And the shitbag wasn't even paying rent. The last time the true admission had crept up on Libby, she was at work. She was making coffee in the rec room. Staring at the dirty walls and cracked ceilings. Tapping her yellow nails on the yellow formica. When she turned around and looked through the glass partition at the large, impersonal office below. A gray labyrinth of padded, how ironic since she did appear to be going mad, partitioned workstations and people in them desperately trying not to become invisible by placing family photos in hilarious darling, rhyming magnets and personalized mugs. I'm an utter clown and I know it in all the other sad little attempts that... So definitely. 
set them apart from the other 300 robots in this building. Because they were robots, even if most of them didn't know it, didn't believe it, or couldn't admit it yet. Libby had looked out towards her desk and had seen the oddest thing. Herself. She was sitting there, typing a memo, no doubt. A stationary invoice or something else of no doubt likewise, world importance. She was just standing there, holding her empty coffee cup ready to be filled, looking at herself, typing, and actually doing a good job of it, she thought. She really was a wonderfully mediocre member of society, and if there was a prize for the best conveniently invisible typist slash assistant slash mindless grub, she'd be sure to get it. And at that moment, it had happened, and she had seen clearly for the first time in her life, although the knowledge must have always been there, hiding, peering out from under the sheets, you know, just how the land lay, and what was stirring in the weeds, her future. Suddenly, she couldn't hold the thin, stretching partition the moldy, threadbare gingham tablecloth she had erected between herself and her weird hours working, keeping himself to himself flatmate. And she had been sick a little in her mouth. She swallowed it down and did her best to stem the rising fear and panic that welled within her. But not before her eyes had filled with spiteful tears. And, hating herself, her hand had shaken the coffee cup rattling softly on the formica. Since then, she had managed to put back up that homemade partition with its threadbare center and its dulled yellow squares and brown stains. hate to think what they were. The flatmate was staying quiet for the time being, and she was happy to again ignore him. There was a tapping on the window now, and Libby knew without even looking that it was raining, and the wind had started up. The large evergreen just outside her living room window would be pounding its branches against it. There were trees like this all around the city. Huge, great monsters seemingly abandoned all over the place that were like stretched, unwelcome alien visitors. And Libby imagined them looking into the windows of the city, making copious notes, getting ready for the invasion and obscuring everyone's fucking view while doing it. She pulled the small gray, was everything gray here, television remote to her, then and switched on the small set. My turn tonight to shite back. She pressed the channel up button. She did this over and over and over until she had zipped through all some 99 and so channels of bollocks and bullshit until she came back to the start and then went through it all again. She could do this all night if she didn't stop herself. Channel after channel after channel of absolutely nothing. Sometimes there was a half-decent sci-fi film on, a B-movie, poisonous spiders and aliens, full of has-beens or C-list soap stars kidding themselves that they were in films. And she would look at the screen if that was on, We won't go so far as to say she'd actually watch the film, 
Just look at it. Blankly. But no B-movie tonight. Shame. She could have used the company. She switched off the television. Reluctantly, she padded in her bare feet toward the sink. The sink wasn't so much as in the kitchen as it was in the corner of the living room that the landlord lyingly called the kitchen. Libby didn't mind. Not even the lie. Less to clean. And didn't that make sense? Why waste your life cleaning when you could sit in front of a blank television screen? Or go crazy at work in front of the coffee cups and formica? Every cloud, baby. Every cloud. And as she washed this morning's breakfast dishes, the browning once was white coffee cup and a small plate with crumbs on it, she thought again of that roommate of hers. And it was just as well that he worked weird hours, and there was only one bedroom. A large coffin, really. So all's good. Because if it hadn't been for the working hours, the arrangement really wouldn't have been practical. That thought made her laugh a little then, but she soon stopped it in her throat. It sounded frightening, hysterical even in her little gray apartment laughing to herself like that and no B-movie to drown it out. She looked around nervously, frightened someone next door might have heard her, padded to the cupboard, sorry, bathroom, except there was no actual bath. Instead, there was a functional shower cubicle that had mold around every single edge that, no matter how hard Libby scrubbed on her days off, never seemed to go a fucking way. It was a rather disturbing pink color, the mold. Now, Libby's heart, Catherine wheeled when she heard from the curtained cubicle, That's how you get Dutch Elm's disease, baby. No, it's not. That's Legionnaire's disease. And people don't get Dutch Elm, it's only trees. I heard of a case. In Japan. What would Dutch Elm be doing in Japan? A new strain. Libby stopped talking to her imaginary flatmate then because it all just seemed too weird assed freaky to continue, and looked hard at herself in the scabby mirror, toothbrush in hand like a sword. Maybe she could stab him. And shuddered, really shuddered. If she was talking to him, then how long would it be till she was giving him a name? It wouldn't be much of a stretch until she was giving him a face and a hairdo. She wanted to cry. And suddenly, it was just like when, at fifteen, she had held her father in her arms on the floor of the family home bathroom. Laura Ashley and white soft furnishings. And how she loved her mother for that. As he breathed hard and looked ugly in death, in that oh-so-cold bathroom. Hadn't this once been a place of childish dreams? Hanging out the window, smoking at birthdays, because you had been allowed a glass of wine, and you felt a bit tipsy, the family downstairs no doubt smelling it and pretending not to. She held her dying father, and at the very inappropriate moment, she had thought to herself how that long-ago neurologist, Freud, had gotten it all wrong. 
She hadn't wished to trade places with her mother. She wished her mother was there instead of her, but her father needed someone to hold him and see him right in his last moments, and her mother wasn't there that day. And as he died, he looked at Libby and said, You are my best friend. I cannot imagine having gone through life without you. Libby had known, he thought, her to be her mother then and hadn't minded, only felt like an intruder looking at her father's gray face, once so masculine and powerful. Sure then that she had never known him, not really, and that most painful of all, that was how it was meant to go in life. So now she looked around her cupboard bathroom, sans bath, and felt an ache because it wasn't the Laura Ashley bathroom her mother had created. And Libby cried a little. Out loud, but quiet. The sound of humming and soapy setting came from the cubicle. She caught herself. Not tonight, Libby. Let's leave all this till another night. It can fill the void then. She brushed her teeth and padded to the bedroom. She didn't call it her bedroom because she did, after all, share it with someone. The realization that she was going nowhere that had become manifest now shared it with her and he had far, far more personality than she ever did for her to deny it. Actually, recently she was beginning to feel more like the lodger than him. In the bedroom, she left the curtains open. Libby liked to leave the curtains fully open at night. She feared the darkness of the city too much to sleep in blackness. Plus, she had become too used to the street lamps the companies had installed that it wasn't really even an option anymore. She rose when it was dark, came home when it was dark, so the streetlights were always on to her recollection. She was beginning to forget what daylight looked like. Libby worked in a supplies office, a large one, in one of the many vast impersonal buildings squatted around the city like warts, all of which were somehow attached to the companies. It was underground, and the lights there were an orange color. There were hundreds of workers down there with her, and she knew none of them personally, only to say, good morning, see you tomorrow. This was not a friendly city. It was more like an 18th century Parisian whore. She knew her remit, did it well, and didn't need to make friends with you to give you a good blowjob. Thank you very much. And much like said 18th century Parisian whore, this city was stinking beneath all its ruffles and feathers. The greasy makeup plastered on thick to hide pockmarks, and the bruises from pimps, redness around the eye from too much opium, the brassy dress, hide browning underwear and flea-ridden purple skin, and under that skin, organs pickled from too much gin, diseased from years of unprotected, unwashed sex, rotting teeth, and poisonous breath and puss as well, oozing and seeping out of the folds of the flesh. And at the center of all this was a heart as gray and bleak as any concrete block of later centuries. 
Libby heard a thud from the apartment below. It was occupied by a sad old man with the surname Rich, who had a stump for a right hand. Libby didn't know his first name, only that he had lost part of his right arm in an industrial accident, and she only knew that because she had heard him screaming on the telephone about it one holiday Monday. But she felt a dull ache when she heard him shouting like that. On that cold holiday Monday, a silent empathy that threatened to break her in two. He had sounded drunk, shouting down the telephone to someone called Nora, yelling and swearing about how she was a bitch to leave him when he needed her most. Maybe that's why she so decidedly hadn't made friends with anyone in this company city. There was a tall man at work who wore brown suit jackets and jeans, and Libby liked to say hello to him. He reminded her of her father, but generally everyone here, including the people, were gray, and to invite that in was death. It was bad enough just moving around in all this toilet grayness, a gray toilet bowl that hadn't even been thought about being cleaned and God only knows how long, never mind actually allowing it into your soul, where it might eat you from the inside out. Libby crept into bed, like an unwelcome guest at a party, who knew they were unwelcome, ignoring the singing now coming from down the hall, an old, old song, Paper Roses. She heard soft, padding steps coming towards the bedroom, and in the orange light of the street lamps, in the doorway she saw him, his features very real and defined. He looked like he was going to redecorate. But I'm in here, she began to say. Despite his clanking of stepladders and slicing of wallpaper, Libby slept. In the morning, Libby felt weary, flimsy, and nondescript, and when she went to the bathroom, she could see herself properly in the mirror. Someone's losing their mind, baby. Because she saw him behind her. His wide, made-up eyes glittered and his reddened mouth smiled and pouted. He was reapplying cherry sundae lipstick. In the lift, the one-armed man smiled at Libby. That was new? No. He was smiling at the flatmate. Inside Libby began to die. She was silently screaming. Silently because she thought she couldn't be sure that her voice box had disappeared. And the wind raped and ragged at Libby's face as she struggled through the wide streets. Careful you don't get blown away. You know what happened to Dorothy. She could hear her flatmate a couple of steps behind her, singing. She turned and saw him wag a lacquered fingernail at her. Stepping into the wide expanse of the office, Libby felt her feet fall away. And as she tried to say hello to brown suit jacket man, she experienced a nothingness in her ankles. They were disappearing. She thought for a minute the man was smiling at her, but of course he was looking further past. She tried to run, but her legs were stardust now, and she could only stand and feel her replacement swish past her. He was wearing Givenchy and 
smelled of lemongrass, and as Libby's chest imploded, she saw him wink at her and smile. She tried to smile back, and the very last thing she saw was her colleagues surrounding her flatmate, laughing with him, applauding him. Libby tried to wave goodbye until all that was left was a waving hand before it too disappeared and in the folds of the flesh of the city Libby disappeared also thanks for listening I hope you all enjoyed all of tonight's stories Patreon shoutouts this week go to Emily Grayson and Crystal Singer. You have my eternal gratitude. Thank you so much for your support. I got a lot of good feedback on last week's episode. Like, a lot of good feedback. Thank you so much for listening to me ramble about time slips for an hour. And it makes me so happy to know that if I ever feel like doing another one-topic week where I talk at you about insane stuff, that it will be welcome with open arms. I also saw some great discussions over on the Facebook page. I got so many suggestions on different podcasts and YouTube videos that I can further my my time slip obsession. Thank you so much, you guys. I seriously, like, you guys are just, like, fueling the fire. It's great. To keep up with the show, you can follow at Scare You to Sleep on Twitter and Instagram. You can go to facebook.com slash scary to sleep to chat with fellow listeners, some of the authors from the show, and me. Check out the show notes for my offer codes for both Shudder and Zola. And I think that's all for now. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Are you intrigued by all things that go bump in the night? Do you wonder what makes serial killers tick? Do you want to be spooked shitless? I'm Kayla. And I'm Michaela. And we are Tale of Two Dead Girls. If you want to dig into the world of everything true crime, paranormal, and all things spooky, then we are the podcast for you. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'll We'll meet meet you six feet feet under. under.